This episode is sponsored by Supergoop, the experts in SPF. In fact, we even had Holly Thaggard, Supergoop's founder, on an episode of Second Life to talk about building the innovative brand from the ground up. I would highly recommend taking a listen, just like I'd highly recommend trying one of their SPF products. In fact, you have over 40 to choose from, ranging from the best-selling Unseen Sunscreen SPF 40 to their Poof 100% Mineral Part Powder SPF 35 to keep your scalp safe. They really do think of everything. Head to supergoop.com to shop now and save 10% with code WWW10. That's supergoop.com with the offer code WWW10. Welcome to Who, What, Where with Hillary Kerr, your direct line to the designers, stylists, beauty experts, editors, and tastemakers who are shaping the ever-evolving world of fashion. I'm your host, Hillary Kerr, and today I'm speaking with fashion and culture journalist and author, Amy O'Dell. Amy's highly anticipated second book, Anna, is the definitive biography of the editor-in-chief of Vogue and cultural icon, Anna Winter. In this highly researched and detailed account, Amy has created a gripping portrayal of everything you've wanted to know about the powerful woman behind the blunt bob and sunglasses. But when writing a book about the most influential woman in media, how do you get her closest confidants to agree to speak with you? Do you reveal your intention to Anna herself? How do you decide whose account to trust? Amy's here to answer all of those questions and more. It's all coming up on Who, What, Where. I am truly excited to have you on for a number of reasons. I'm a big personal fan. I have followed your work for so long. But also, I have to say, this book, folks are losing their minds. Everyone is so excited about it. Thank you. I mean, the response to this book has to be gratifying. Are you thrilled with sort of these early initial days and how delighted everyone is about it? It's a surreal experience because it's like graduating that this is happening. You know, it's 2022. I started around the fall of 2018. I had just had my first baby. I had my second baby after I filed the first draft. So (laughs) it's surreal. It's completely surreal. I'm excited that it's getting out in the world. I can't wait for people to read it. I can't wait to hear from people. And I hope people enjoy the book. So... You are a brilliant writer. You are an incredible journalist. I loved your first book. And Thank you so much. This book, Anna, very beautifully timed with the Met Gala, mm-hmm. was just released on May 3rd. It is the definitive biography of the one and only Anna Winter, who's the editor-in-chief of Vogue, the global chief content officer for Condé Nast, one of the most influential voices in media, and legendary on a number of levels. She's obviously a very fascinating person, but I'm curious about your own quest, motivation, thought process, desire to write this book. Why this book and why now? Yeah, so 
I started on the book, as I said, in 2018, and it came to me through the publisher. They had had the idea, and I knew the editor, Karen Marcus, who was phenomenal, but she acquired my first book. So that was that connection. And I didn't think I would ever write a book like this, to be honest with you. I wanted to write essays. I wanted to write humor. I didn't think I was going to write a biography ever. And I was waiting to go into labor with my son, and I was five or six days late, super stressed out about that. And I get this call from my agent, and she says, they're interested in an antibiography, and they thought of you. What do you think about that? And I just, I got a shiver up my spine. I just got chills, and I thought, that sounds like an incredible assignment. And I got on the phone with Karen and another editor, Amy Bell, and Amy said, it's the idea that's hiding in plain sight. And I think also around this time in 2018, there were rumors that Anna was going to leave Vogue, and they were printed in the New York Post, and it trended on Twitter. It was like huge. Fashion stories don't blow up like this. But Anna is an icon who transcends fashion, and she's a significant part of culture and has been for 34 years. And when you think of the opportunity with a book about someone like Anna, it is one thing to get to the top. It is another to stay there. And she has been there running Vogue since the summer of 1988. If you think of other business leaders like Jeff Bezos, he left Amazon after 27. So this is extremely unusual, this tenure. And she has had this remarkable power in fashion. Yet, despite having this public position, she has remained an enigma, even to people who know her. And I wanted in Anna the biography to pull back the curtain on who she really is as a person and as a mega, mega influencer. Mega, mega, indeed. So... I think it's really important to start with the fact that this book is so meticulously, thoroughly, wildly researched. I mean, the level of detail in here, it's exquisite. There's so much to sink your teeth into. Obviously, it took you a number of years to write this. I read that you interviewed over 250 people, which seems like a lot. Mm -hmm. In this researching and reporting, as well as writing part of it, like what did that look like for you? Who was it most exciting to talk to? What was the biggest challenge? I love the nitty gritty of the details of how it all comes together. So I would be so curious about anything that you are able to share about your process. Yeah, I love talking about that. So it was <laughs> extremely difficult. And in the beginning, I thought I was going to have to give up and I wasn't going to be able to get it done because you just have to call a lot of people and reach out to a lot of people. And I got a lot of no's, like weeks of no's. But I ultimately figured out how to make some progress. So I went back to the beginning of Anna's life and I decided to report chronologically. I had some success with that strategy. The thinking was that people who she knew who she was 20 would be much more distant from her than people she knew when she was 60. And that turned out to be the case. Those people, um, it was easier to get people from a long time ago to talk. And after about a year and a half of working on the book, Anna got wind of the fact that I was working on it. Wait, it took that long? Mm -hmm. I was very careful. So that was a strategy. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. The reason I was so careful is because when I was approaching people, they would say one of two things. Some people said, she's going to use Kane Nas to shut you down, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure that this doesn't happen. If they have to threaten your publisher, they'll, they'll threaten your publisher. Like, all this stuff. And the other group of people said, 
I thought she was great, and I think she's going to help you with this. That group of people turned out to be right. She did end up helping me. After about a year and a half, I spoke to a representative in her office, and I explained this is biography about a woman in a unique position of power. And what came of that conversation is they said, Anna would like to set you up with some of her closest friends and colleagues for interviews. They sent over a list of names that included people like Tom Ford, Serena Williams, Hamish Bowles, who's been at Vogue for a very long time. And I subsequently asked if she would be okay with me interviewing a number of other people who wouldn't talk to me without her saying okay. And she said yes to every single person. This was all done through her rep. And she declined herself to sit for an interview. She declined several requests to sit for an interview. But once that happened, the floodgates opened for me. So I was able to get the main characters of her career, like Grace Coddington, Phyllis Posnick, Sally Singer. So that was major. And people who had hung up on me... (laughs) picked up the phone. They agreed to talk to me. You have to be really, really persistent as a journalist, as you well know. And, you know, you have to go back and ask people again and again and again. And it all ultimately came together. Yeah, it was a lot of work. It was very hard. A lot of doubt along the way. Why do you think she decided to help you? I can't tell you what goes through her head, but (laughs) what I can say is that she's a woman who is full of contradictions. I'll go back to my example about how people said she's going to shut you down and other people being like, she's going to be fine with this. Then I will say this book, it is about her troubles and her triumphs. Her mistakes are included. A lot of the reporting I did without her knowing about it, you know, I did on my own. There's a lot of background reporting in here. In addition to those on-the-record sources and those interviews with people who never spoke at length on the record about her before. But it's fair. I believe this is a fair book. And you said, thank you for calling out the meticulous research, which is documented in the endnotes. But I felt it was really important with someone who has been the subject of so much gossip and speculation and so much of it false to be very clear about where information was coming from and to, you know, be very careful about language and the things that are included in the book. It's very buttoned up. And it's so interesting to your point, like you did make this point a number of times in the book, you know, she hates small talk, but she likes it when people will pop by her office and ask a question. I love that because I think we all can relate to that. Like we all contain multitudes, right? Mm -hmm. And she's just a human like everyone else who doesn't like some things and is okay with others. And it all kind of depends. So I was really impressed by the level of detail about her parents' lives, their histories, her childhood itself. How did you go about doing all of that research? How did you go about figuring out some of that background stuff and the historic stuff? Because, of course, someone who knew her when she was, you know, in high school or a college teenager would be more apt to talk. But those are very personal details. Yeah. So... One of the best resources for me on her parents and her early life is her father had a bunch of letters in the Arthur Schlesinger Jr. archive in the New York Public Library. So you know how public figures, when they die, they'll send their papers to a library and uh, so people like me can go and noodle through them. And you can search all this online. So a lot of my research was done during the pandemic, but before the pandemic hit, I was able to go into the library and go through this massive massive, fascinating archive of letters handwritten from the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Like they had a very long friendship, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the well-known historian and Charles Winter Anna's father. And it went back like I could see from before he met Anna's mom, I think. Wow. 
and their wedding invitation was in there. I mean, it was an extraordinary resource. The other crazy thing about this archive is that his handwriting was so difficult to read. I spent so many hours just trying to understand the handwriting. It was so hard. And I learned in reporting about Anna, who mirrors her father in many, many ways, that she also has handwriting that is so terrible that a lot of people, it takes them a long time to figure out what she's writing. And her assistants, they have to know and they have to figure it out. So if people on her staff can't figure out what she's written, they'll go to the assistants and be like, can you tell me what this says? I love that the assistants are the Rosetta Stone. Yeah. Well, they they have to be. (laughs) They They have have no (laughs) choice. She doesn't have time for you to not be able to read her note. Right. So I also didn't know that she's had this haircut for so long, which (laughs) just cracked me up, which I kind of loved because I like the idea of you figure out what your signature look is and you go with it. But that this look, the very signature blunt bangs, Bob situation was like a dime a dozen when she first got it. And then she's just held on to it. And now it's synonymous with her. Right. But it was also interesting. Like, I love the fact that she loved Seventeen Magazine. There are so many interesting small details in here, like that she would go out to a club when she was young, but would have, you know, a soft drink and then come home. What surprised you the most about her through all of your research? Because, I mean, there's just such a phenomenal amount of it. Yeah, thank you. So, yes, I do love the opening of the book because you, while her parents were, they had their romance, which unfolded during the war, which is so crazy. If you really think about it, can you imagine if, you know, you meet somebody in college and then you have to be separated because her mother is from the Northeast in the U.S. and her father is from England. But they had this romance at Cambridge, and then they had to be separated, and he had to enlist in the Army because of World War II, and she was back here in the U.S., and they got married during the war, and um, I found that to be extraordinary. You know, they had a difficult marriage, which I talk about, and I talk about the ways that that affected Anna's home life. But yeah, I do love the opening part of the book, and then it goes into... She was born in 1949, so until she was about 10, 11, she's living in kind of this grim, post-war, sad London. Think of the fashion of the 50s. Not really that exciting. But then in 60s, in London, we have swinging London. We have the youth quake. Fashion completely changes. Youth culture takes over. Youth quake, interestingly, was coined by Deanna Freeland, who was also a very famous editor-in-chief of Vogue in the 60s. But everything was about London and the Beatles and miniskirts and go-go boots. Like, you can picture it, right? The bob haircut. Everything was totally different. And Anna has said that this is what made her passionate about fashion. But to answer your question about the thing that surprised me the most, I thought going into this book that her power had weakened. And I feel like it has not after having done the research. I don't know that it really has weakened much, if at all. That's interesting because it seems like it just continues to build in other ways. And even though the world has changed and, you know, the publishing industry, especially print magazines are not what they were, certainly when I started, let alone prior to that, even though all of that has changed, she still is the one who can make things happen and can make business things happen, which is, you know, remarkable all considering. I also found it remarkable the detailed description of what the Condé Nast offices and what the Vogue office was like in the wake of the 2016 election results. 
She had obviously come out strong for Hillary Clinton. You also get into all kinds of incredible details about like her first day as editor-in-chief of American Vogue and how Liz Smith, the formidable gossip columnist, wrote that she had failed upward into her position, which is such an evil thing to say. Yeah. You talk about her personal life. You talk about her divorce. She's lived a lot of life. What era was the most difficult to research or to get exactly right? And what era was more straightforward or easier to report on? Reporting every aspect of the book was challenging. (laughs) With biography, and Anna's 72, so that's a lot of years to cover. With biography, you're up against the human memory in a way that I've never been in any other journalism I've done, because you're asking people who are 72, what was it like in elementary school? (laughs) My favorite part of the book that said is probably around her New York Magazine job, because she was a fashion editor at New York Magazine, and that is what caught the eye of Condé Nast. And that's how she ended up going to American Vogue to be creative director. And of course, she's been at Condé Nast ever since then. And that was around 1982-83 that she went from New York Mag to American Vogue. But I loved those chapters the most, actually, like the 80s from 82 to 1990. She became editor-in-chief in 1988. So that whole transition and contrasting Grace Mirabella, her predecessor as editor-in-chief, contrasting that office and that Vogue with Anna's office and Anna's Vogue. I just thought it was so delicious, the details that I got. For instance, Grace Mirabella, her office was all beige and had like soft chairs and she would have run-throughs where the clothes are selected for the fashion shoots with her team. Typical thing you do in a fashion magazine office, right? Yep. And she would have a lot of people gather in, all of her generals, Polly Mellon, Jade Hobson, these famous fashion editors who we know today. And she would spend forever, like hours and hours and hours talking about the clothes and trying to figure out what to shoot and why we're shooting it and why women need these clothes. And she made her team like really justify it. And then Anna came in And when she was editor-in-chief, it would be like, there were no chairs. You came in. It was 15 minutes. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, goodbye. And that is very much her style. And she's stuck with that. And I I don't know. I just loved that. Just seeing that transition and you seeing Anna evolve from that New York mag editor. And she was fired in the 70s from Herbert's Bazaar, which was a formative experience for her. So she had to learn. She's a good corporate soldier now, but she really had to learn how to become that good corporate soldier. And she made mistakes along the way. We'll be right back after the break. Supergoop makes SPF to wear every single day, just as your dermatologist recommends. With over 40 products to choose from for the face and body, made with clean, reef-friendly ingredients, there truly is a feel-good sunscreen for everyone. So head to supergoop.com to find your perfect everyday products and use the code WWW10 for 10% off your purchase. Your dermatologist will be proud. So another thing that I really loved about this book, and it touches a little bit on what you were saying about memory, that horrible chestnut about like there's your recollection of something, there's my recollection of something, and then there's the truth. There's obviously some version of that. But I think part of why it feels like such a complete portrait of her is because you are very clear about people remember things differently. 
Which makes sense because something that was maybe incredibly important to you and linked to something else in your life, you're going to remember it one way. Whereas for someone else, if they weren't as close, like they'll have a different memory of it or they won't be as precise with it. And you're very transparent about the fact that like the same event can happen and people have all of these different memories of it, interpretations of it, experiences of it. Did you ever find it difficult to sort through all of that or to think through what the real story is or what the truth was? Or did you just feel comfortable sort of in the in-between? No, I feel not at all comfortable in the in-between at all. (laughs) No way. I worked so hard to corroborate everything that I could. And I did a lot of calls with people just to be like, this is what someone told me. How do you remember it? And this is the thing, like people interpret people's actions differently. Right. So you want to be careful about the way you're characterizing things. And if there was not a consensus on her actions and how they were resonating with people, I tried to say that, you know, some people thought that it meant this and others people thought that it it meant this. But yeah, I did not feel comfortable in the in-between, which is why I have so many endnotes and sourced so thoroughly and did so much fact-checking. But yeah, we were very careful about getting everything right. And I just felt like that's what you had to do with Anna because people are going to have preconceived notions of her. They're going to have read gossip about her. Much of it false. Anna's not someone who corrects a lot of the stories that are out there about her, but I was able to do that in this book. I mean, it just seems like such a ferocious task because I'm sure there there are times that like whatever the truth is doesn't reflect well upon them. So they're less apt to share that version of it. So trying to figure out the pressure points of it's not just about her. It's also about all of the other people and how honest they care to be because of how it could reflect back on them. And this happened 30 years ago. We're viewing it through a different lens, like the mind boggles at what you had to parse after all this time. Yeah, it was hard. It was a lot of work. But yeah, there's a a lot of characters in the book and it was fun to bring them to life. Like all these fashion editors like Polly Mellon and Andre Leontali, like really passionate, incredible people to illustrate who were part of Anna's success. And that was that was really, really fun. So the example you give of how the run-throughs and how different things would be where Anna was just very cut and dry. On one hand, you could say, oh, that's a really definitive woman who knows her mind and already has thought through everything and is being conscientious of everyone else's time. On the other hand, you could say, that's someone who doesn't care as much about fashion. So I'm curious about whether you personally, after all of these years of being immersed in her psyche, does she care about fashion? Does she care about power? Does she care about influence? Like what's the most important thing to her in your mind? Different people have different answers to that question. Like I asked a lot of people, is she an introvert or an extrovert? People couldn't come to consensus on that question, (laughs) which I thought was crazy. Like think of your friends or your people you work with. Like you probably know, you probably have a hunch about that. But I got a lot of answers. Like you can't put her in a box like that. So you also get different answers to that question, like what is her passion? Some people are going to tell you she loves fashion. Like if you are in an elevator and she wants to talk to you, she's going to want to talk about fashion. Some people will tell you she's all about power. Andre Leontali said, I interviewed him extensively before he died. He said she's all about power. Her friend, David Hare, the playwright, told me she's not about power at all. And he was funny because I asked him if Anna had talked about meeting the Queen. We've all seen those photos of Anna and the Queen front row at a fashion show at London Fashion Week. And he said they were just laughing about it. Like he saw Anna after and they were just laughing. They just thought it was so funny that she had had that opportunity. 
And he didn't think she was about power at all. So I think what I draw from that is that she shows different sides of herself to different people and she is good at compartmentalizing. That's an interesting analysis. I like it. So you obviously got to speak with so many folks. Some have to stand out as being particularly enjoyable or interesting to interview. And I'm curious about who delighted you the most or who was the most entertaining or thoughtful or had the best details? Who are the standouts for you, I guess? So many amazing people. Andre Leontali certainly stands out. I mean, I could listen to him describe a construction site or like paint drying on a wall and it would be just delicious. It was just so, so fun to talk to him. And he also knows so much about fashion. So he was he was able to also help me place Anna in the context of fashion. And Tom Ford is always really fun to talk to. As I put in the book, he had some commentary about the Met Ball that he thinks has become a costume party, which I think I put that in the book because I think that's kind of a common criticism. He said it used to be that you didn't have to dress like a chandelier. You didn't have to dress like a hamburger. And he he had no problem saying that. And Tom Ford, as we know, anybody who's read any profile of him knows he's always going to give you some great quotes. Who else was great? Oh, Jack and Lazaro from Peruanza were good too. They told me a funny story about how after one of the Met galas, they took Anna to Bungalow 8. <laughs> Ots, New York was all about Bungalow 8. Yeah. And they got her to go and she was like, what do you guys do here? And they're like, I don't know. We just like smoke cigarettes and drink or something. She was like, gross. And she left. <laughs> I talked to like... The person who I think is her first ever assistant when she was at Harper's and Queen, which is a job she had from about 1970 to 1975. And I thought that was fascinating how Anna, as a 22-year-old, had the same effect on people that she does today, where they all kind of feel like they're always doing something wrong somehow. <laughs> Aurora James, the brother of Ellie's designer and the founder of the 15% Pledge, which asks retailers to devote 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses. I interviewed her. She had gone through the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, so she was able to talk about what that was like. And she said that when she was going through that process, she was talking to Anna about her activism and fashion, and she's passionate about both. And Anna said, you might have to pick between being an activist and being a designer. And she said, well, I don't think I do. And then she said, Anna kind of gave her a look, like Anna kind of knew that, you know, she was right. And of course, we've seen how fashion and social issues have really collided over the past couple of years. And it was kind of like a long build up to that. But it's, you know, I would say that fashion is really trying to stand for something. And she was really at the forefront of that, Aurora James. So it was really great to talk to her. That's so amazing. Okay. So on the flip side of that, who was the most difficult to interview, both in terms of they chose to participate, but were not fully participating or just difficult to pin down where you had to keep going back and knocking on that door over and over again? Someone who is difficult. So so Anna was a kind of a lowly fashion editor at Harper's Bazaar in 1975 and 1976. She was there for less than a year on the staff and that's the job she was fired from. And I was desperate to figure out what it was that got her fired. And this is the thing, like, where the human memory becomes an obstacle because no one had a very clear memory of the shoot that she turned in that ultimately led to her getting fired. But there was one person who I was desperate to talk to who had worked there. And she hung up on me. 
and didn't want anything to do with me. And then I went to her at the very end because I was so annoyed that I didn't have this chapter where I wanted it to be. I felt like I was missing information. And I was like, I'm going to go to her again. Like she said no over email. She hung up on me, but I'm going to try her again. And then she agreed to talk to me. And we had a great conversation. She answered a lot of questions that I had that I felt I really needed for that chapter. That had to be satisfying. Yes. It was like such a relief. Like, oh my God, finally, I can fill out this chapter with all the things that I needed to really describe that Anna, that Harper's Bazaar Anna. And like when it all falls into place like that, I know that feeling. It is so incredible where you're just like the Tetris of it all suddenly makes sense. It's incredible. Okay. So you also wrote about Anna's iconic first American Vogue cover, which it's so wild to me because at the time, I mean, people were scandalized. It's like, here we have a couture jacket and guest jeans and people were horrified and thought it was a mistake. Meanwhile, that's like the beginning of high-low dressing in some ways, certainly in pop culture. So I am wondering if you can talk a little bit about the way that she really shook up Vogue in the beginning and some other key moments throughout her career that you think were sort of turning points. Yeah, definitely. Before Anna got to American Vogue as editor-in-chief, she was the editor-in-chief of House and Garden. And many people say House and Garden was a failure on her resume. So she took over House and Garden and she changed it dramatically and she changed it fast. She changed the name to HG. She added fashion. She added models. It used to be like empty rooms, like a dining room with a table perfectly set for dinner and like no evidence that anyone had ever been in that room or like lived in the house. So she wanted to make it look like people lived in the homes. And that's what we have today with interiors magazines, right? Yeah. Like you expect to see Chris Jenner sitting on her settee by her fireplace. But this was radical for the time. And it was controversial. People didn't like it. Like the readers of HG didn't like it. And the interiors industry did not like it either. So I think that was a really important lesson for her. And people canceled their subscriptions and advertisers pulled out, which is not what you want to happen when you're the editor-in-chief. And with American Vogue, I think she knew that she had to put her stamp on the magazine because like, she's editor-in-chief. Conde Nast is a tough place to work. And you got to move fast. You got to put your stamp on it. But she also couldn't change it so fast or so much that she would have the same thing happen that happened at HG because Vogue was the crown jewel. It still is of Conde Nast. You don't have that kind of room for failure there. And some people would probably argue the only reason she had the room for failure at HG is because she was such a favorite of Cy Newhouse and Alexander Lieberman, who were her bosses. But yeah, so she had to put her stamp on it. She got rid of Richard Avedon, who had been shooting the American Vogue covers for a long time. And if you look at the archive, you can tell when Anna took over because the covers under Grace Mirabella, especially leading up to Anna, they were all so similar. It was like cookie cutter copies of one another. It was like just a headshot every single month, just a headshot. And all that really changed was like the lipstick color and the earring maybe. And it's the 80s. So you can imagine what the earrings would look like. And Anna, that's pretty boring to have the same thing over and over again. So she got rid of Richard Avedon and she picked this image of Michaela Bercou wearing the couture Christian Lacroix. It's actually a silk jacket embroidered with that cross and the guest jeans and her hair is long and she's out in the street. She's not in a studio. So Avedon was always in a studio. So it's kind of a breath of fresh air. 
And it did well. And Cy Newhouse was really proud of her. Um, But she continued in that trajectory, like the girl outside smiling. So I think that really started with her first cover. You also wrote quite a bit about the evolution, speaking of evolutions, the evolution of the Met Gala. Obviously, Tom Ford has his thoughts about what it has turned into, but I'm curious if you can share a little bit about how it's progressed over time, because it's so funny. Like, I remember when we first started covering it for Who, What, Where, Vogue.com didn't exist. We were the only ones who were covering it. Wow. But it's it's just remarkable. Like, I remember covering it and thinking, like, this is so wild that no one else is paying attention to this. This is obviously a big deal. So over the last almost 16 years, I've seen it progress in such an enormous way. But I'm curious about your take on it from the reporting side. Yeah. So Anna Wintour took over planning the Met Gala in 1995. So she's been doing it for a long time. And one of her friends told me that when she gets bored in her job, she finds another project within it to keep it interesting for her. And I think the Met Gala has been that. And also, this is something else I found fascinating about her. She wants her legacy to be for her philanthropy, not for her magazine work. And the Met Gala is meant to raise money for the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Anna has raised money, I should say, over the years for other causes, including AIDS, breast cancer, and mental health, to name a few. But this is her big thing. She's raised more than $250 million for the Costume Institute through the Met Gala. And she grew it from really a sleepy New York Society event to something that celebrities are clamoring to get into. They have been calling Vogue over the years, asking for invites. And I'm glad you brought up covering it before Vogue had their own website because there was definitely a turning point in media where like those parties and those party pictures became uh, like such a big deal. And everybody realized, including Anna and celebrities and the whole entertainment industry realized like this is a really valuable way to get publicity. And uh, the Hilton sisters tried to get in and Anna never let them in. Kim Kardashian tried to get in. As we know, she finally did get in in 2013. As a plus one. Yeah, with Kanye, who has apparently has his own personal relationship with Anna. But she finally got in. And I thought it was so funny that at the camp gala in 2019, where she wore that latex theory Mugler dress, kind of um, yeah. a mauve color with the jewels looking like they were dripping off. They go into the museum and then there's a dinner and they get to dinner. And Anna, who is militant at the party, according to a former planner, is standing there and she's like, why is Kim Kardashian not sitting down? Can you please tell her to sit down? And someone on her staff said, well, actually, she just can't sit in that dress. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. Like, she finally gets in, and then Anna is still sitting there like, sit down. And then there's still something to let you know that you're not doing something quite right. Right. (laughs) Right. And people told me, like, when celebrities, so they walk the carpet, they walk up those steps, and they're all so nervous. Because it's like they're wearing these elaborate outfits that are, you know, so fun to see. And they got to get up the steps and like look amazing. And then they have to shake Anna Winter's hand. And the vast, vast majority of them are very nervous by all of it. So after all of this research, having been in the fashion media industry yourself, you have such a unique window into the changes that have happened over the past almost century through the lens of Anna and in general, what do you think has changed the most? You spoke a little bit about the activism piece of it, fashion standing for something, how that has evolved slowly, but certainly. What do you think has changed and what has not changed? I think the biggest change in magazines, and certainly for Anna, is just the internet. (laughs) 
And I talk in the book about how, and I didn't know this, but how she was so instrumental in getting designers to put their fashion shows online. She wrote a letter for the Vogue.com team, the earliest Vogue.com team to send to fashion designers to get them to get their shows online. Because this was a crazy, this is like so normal and not a big deal now, but it was such a big deal at the time in fashion. And she, Anna, it's not that she's the most technologically savvy person, but she likes being current and she saw it as a way to be current. And that's why she wanted to have a good website and have the shows on the website. But I think that's the biggest change is that, she used to just edit a print magazine and that was it. And she, you know, she would throw parties. She worked on the Met Gala. And now it's like, you think of all the social media platforms, you've got YouTube, you've got video, you've got live video, you've got text, you've got photos, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's like a never ending litany of stuff that you have to worry about. And that really has hurt, as we know, legacy publishing because advertiser dollars are going to these other platforms instead of the magazines. And Kane Nast has felt that acutely. We've seen reports in the news about how much money they've been losing. One recent year, I can't remember exactly, but they lost more than $150 million, I think. So like we've seen all that happen, yet Anna herself, her lifestyle as editor-in-chief has not really changed. She still seems to get all those perks. She would get a clothing allowance from Kane Nast. Every year, she would get an interest-free mortgage to buy her homes. She got from the company. She gets her hair and makeup done before she goes to work every day. She gets a car. So like she's retained her perks. The industry has totally changed, yet she herself has not really changed that much. And she's really one of the last of the old guard. I mean, there aren't that many people who are left standing after all this time. It's interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Also, like such a comparison to I interviewed Linda Wells for Second Life a number of years ago. And the story she told about like being at Condé Nast when she was launching Allure and there was no budget the first year. None. Wow. Nothing. There was no one saying you have this much money to produce it. It was just open. So I cannot stress to you, lovely listeners, like how significantly the industry has changed. And so it makes it even more remarkable what Amy's saying about that continuity for Anna. So as I mentioned earlier, your first book, which is called Tales from the Back Row, An Outsider's View from Inside the Fashion Industry, came out in 2015. You've had a really remarkable career as a fashion and culture journalist for years. You have a great substack that everyone should subscribe to and read called Back Row. You don't feel like a fashion outsider to me, especially not now. You've just written the definitive biography of fashion's most difficult to understand icon, which is such an insider power play move. Do you still feel like an outsider after all this time? A hundred percent. I'm not going to the Met Gala. I didn't write a puff piece about Anna. I'm not looking for fashion show invites. I'm not looking for press trips. Like, I just don't care about that stuff. So yeah, I feel like an outsider for that reason. You know, I talked to Grace Coddington. She's not my friend. I talked to Tom Ford. He's not my friend, you know? So there's a distance. I've tried to always maintain a distance between the industry and myself. And I know a lot, a lot more than I did when I started, but I hope that that, you know, comes through in my writing that I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of somebody who's on the outside. Well, I think you can be an insider in the way that you are, in the fact that you are such a keen observer, distiller, commenter, like 
you're an insider in your own way. And <laughs> it is just a true delight to read your byline, to read your book. It's so good. Thank you so much for your time, Amy. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I can't tell you how brilliant this book is. So congratulations. Thank you so, so much. A huge thank you to Amy O'Dell, the author of Anna, which is available in bookstores now. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, I'd also be so grateful if you would rate and review us. If you have any guest suggestions or any other feedback, drop us a line at podcast at whowhatwhere.com or you can find us on social at whowhatwhere. See you next Wednesday on Who What Where with Hillary Kerr. This episode was produced by Hillary Kerr and Olivia Capaletti. Editing is by Natalie Thurman and Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California. Our music is by Jonathan Leahy. Thank you to Supergoop for sponsoring today's episode. As the experts in SPF, Supergoop brings you products like Glow Screen and Play Everyday Lotion, enabling you to get outside and live bright. And it's not just for us adults. Supergoop has an entire line designed just for babies and kiddos. With clean, cruelty-free, and super-powered formulas, the whole family is covered. It's SPF for everyone, every single day. Check it out for yourself at supergoop.com and save 10% with the code WWW10. That's supergoop.com with the offer code WWW10.